I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The Israeli Prime Minister is vowing to wipe the Palestinian militant group off the map. China's navy has grown increasingly assertive on the high seas, especially around Taiwan. An out-of-control wildfire is burning dangerously close. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. Turning now to the cost of living, a new number showing what many Canadians are feeling. Inflation is up again. One thing is clear, the political fight over carbon pricing is far from over. Our question, what's the most important news story of 2023? Which one didn't get enough attention? What is the biggest story of the year for me? Well, it's the climate. Climate change has come home to us. Canada likely tripled its carbon emissions footprint. To me, the biggest health story of the year was really a collection of a lot of different stories that sometimes flew under the radar. An ER closure here, a staffing shortage there. Millions of Canadians don't have a family doctor. My pick for underreported story, the impacts and future of AI, because I think the real world impacts are going to increase in 2024, especially with the rise of mis and disinformation. News coverage never stops. You, you never know when that next big story will break. But this year felt different. It wasn't just the number of major stories that stood out, but how emotionally grueling so many of them were. The Israel-Hamas war, of course, but also the displacement and destruction caused by wildfires and floods. And there's still COVID, and there's still a war in Ukraine and punishing inflation. To talk about the big stories of the past year, we've got three of CBC's best journalists with us for the next two hours. Chief political correspondent Rosemary Barton, international climate correspondent, and still occasionally war correspondent Susan Ormiston, and senior business reporter Peter Armstrong. Our question, what's the most important news story of 2023? Which one didn't get enough attention? I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Checkup, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from December 31st, 2023. All right, let's start with our panel, those three CBC journalists. I'm not exactly sure why you agreed to come in on uh, late on an afternoon on December 31st, but I sure am happy that you did. Uh, Rosemary Barton, as I mentioned, our chief political correspondent. She is in Quebec City today. Peter Armstrong, senior business reporter for CBC News. Susan Ormiston is a senior correspondent and uh, climate is uh, her main portfolio. Susan and Peter are in Toronto. Thanks to all three of you for joining us. Great to be here. Pleasure. Just get out on time for our parties, Ian. <laughs> okay, all right. Good for you. I plan to go home and just watch TV, but that's okay. You enjoy your party. And Susan, I'm going to start with you. Um, what, what do you feel the most important story of the year was? Well, I think uh, there's a lot of contenders. There always is. It's like having to pick your favorite child. But uh, in this case, uh, sadly... 2023 saw another significant war, this time in the Middle East, Israel and Hamas still going. We're looking at three months now, uh, 
1,200 Israelis were killed on October 7th when Hamas brutally attacked that country, and the response has been brutal as well. 20,000, say Hamas-controlled health ministries in Gaza, 20,000 dead now, and that war is ongoing. Benjamin Netanyahu saying he will not back down. There will be no more ceasefires. Hamas saying there will be no ceasefire. There will be no hostages released without a ceasefire. It's a desperate situation, and it has been extremely volatile, both in the response and reaction to it and the fighting itself. We were there in October, November. We will be there in January, February, covering that war in. I know it's invoked all kinds of issues and uh, opinions across the world, and what happens there will have impacts for decades to come. I think that is the lasting and um, sad consequence of this war is uh, it has seemingly pushed peace in that area much further away. I spoke to many people in the region uh, in October and November saying that they did not believe in peace anymore, that they couldn't be neighbors anymore. So no one can predict either at this point, how or when it will end. Yeah, the violence uh, staggering from October 7th and, and afterwards, the emotions very raw. And if my email inbox is any indication, uh, a lot of polarization too among people on that story. Peter, on the business beat, what would you identify as the most important story of 2023? Yeah, I, I think mine's easy, right? This, this sort of double whammy of a cost of living crisis on the one hand, uh, and some of it, the impact of what Susan was just talking about, these wars in Europe and the supply chain damage that has been caused as a result have have played a role in driving up prices. So consumers across Canada have seen prices go up while we've seen interest rates skyrocket. And that, that double whammy has squeezed them in ways that uh, I, I, I have been fascinated to watch. It, it has been gruesome to watch. It has been difficult to watch. And it's been incredibly hard on families. Uh, but it, it has been uh, it has been a profound year of of economic uh, a rough ride, right? That mm -hmm. you have these uh, these double forces squeezing families all at a time when the economy has been slowing. We haven't seen growth. I mean, GDP at the the first quarter of 2022 was at one percent, so pretty meager growth. It hasn't been that high since uh, because. As we get squeezed and as our debt payments go up and as our grocery bill goes up, it, it gets harder and harder to keep up. And so people are scaling back their spending and that is slowing out through the entire economy. And that, of course, is having this huge wave of effects, not just on households and not just on businesses and not just on investment, but on politics and on, uh, on, on literally every part of our life. So if there's one single story, and I know I've kind of taken five or six stories and jammed them into one, but the, that cost of living crisis has been the lens through which we have seen literally everything else over this past year. Oh, that's what you do, Peter. You take five or six things, jam <laughs> them into one hit, but it's always full of energy and really clear. And we'll hear a lot more from you uh, through the next two hours, as we will, Susan and, and Rosemary Barton. But uh, tell us, Rosemary, uh, again, from the political perspective, uh, what, what would you identify as the big story? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of uh, snowballs off of what Peter is saying there. The, the cost of living crisis, as, as Peter points out, has affected everyone, but it's also changed the political dynamic in this country. We saw sort of the first half of last year be um, really concentrated on foreign interference. Remember that? When, when it became clear that, A, there wasn't going to be anything 
like real concrete answers out of that. And when it also became clear that this was not the most galvanizing issue for Canadians, the Conservatives pivoted and decided that they were going to put all their eggs in one basket and and make their whole agenda about the cost of living crisis and try and convince Canadians that Justin Trudeau was solely responsible for that. Of course, it's far more complicated than that, but it has worked to some extent. We've seen the Conservatives surge in the polls, sometimes 20 points, as much as 20 points ahead of the Liberals. And we've seen Pierre Poilievre really claim that that ground to make the case that the Conservatives are the ones that will be able to defend Canadians and help them should they be, uh, come into government. It took the took the government some time, I would say towards the end of the summer, they finally started to get a sense of how damaging this was for them. And they finally get, started to get a sense of how much they needed to move, whether it be a grocery rebate, trying to offer breaks for people, and then finally really put a lot of emphasis on housing which they have ramped up in the next uh, in the past couple of months. So um, that that has had a huge impact. And I think we can talk more about it over the next couple of hours. But uh, we, we will also see whether, you know, th- this will define people's futures, political futures a little bit as well. We're live here with Rosemary Barton, Peter Armstrong, and Susan Ormiston. And for those of you who are either watching on CBC News Network or listening on CBC Radio or our other platforms, this is also an opportunity to kind of get a peek behind the curtain at how CBC News Gathering works. And it's just so interesting for me at work to hear journalists like the three that we have on the program today talk about their craft, their approach, their experience, their analysis. And uh, you can ask them some questions about that as well over the next couple of hours. But our official question question is, what was the most important news story of 2023? Which story didn't get enough attention? Of course, you can call us right now at 1-888-416-8333 or go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Let's uh, start with a phone call from Toronto. Valentine Ajus is uh, is on the line. Hi, Valentine. Yep. How, how would you answer the question of the most important news story of 2023? Well, uh, for me, it was the underreporting of the children uh, receiving consent from the Superior Court of Canada to sue the government of Canada for their inaction on climate change. Mm-hmm. And, and why think, do you identify that as a, not just an underreported story, but something that's important enough for you to put at the top of the list? Well, I, well, the reality end of the game is that um, saving our planet isn't the real thing here, saving our civilization, is our planet has gone through a number of cataclysmic events in, in the past, and here we are today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, saving the planet, no. Saving our civilization, yes. Saving a way of life, yes. And unless our government and other governments actually step into it and make a decision to actually do something that's going to uh, make uh, uh, a change in how we live our lives, we're not going to have lives to live that are worth living. And, and how have you how have you changed your life, Valentine, to uh, to deal well, with that crisis? Personally, I, I've abandoned my automobile. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I I try and live a, a minimalist lifestyle. I, I buy secondhand clothes. Uh, I buy uh, uh, food that that reduced, you know, because it's it's aged out or mm-hmm. it, it, it's unsightly or um, I walk, you know, a, as much as I can. 
And when I can't walk there, I'm on public transit. Mm -hmm. And you know, and how does your a lifestyle, like you're, you are, you know, literally walking the walk, um, your lifestyle choices and your concern about this, um, what kind of reaction do you get from family and friends? Are they with you on this as well? Well, well, my well, friends are, 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 are minimal at best. I, I, I'm an extremely mature adult. So uh, those I have known are no longer here. Mm -hmm. And as for my family, uh, my family, they have their own lives. I, I mean, I, I'm engaged in, in one on a regular ongoing basis. And, and her life is similar to mine in, in many respects. But in other respects, she's bought into this uh, idea of, of FOMO, fear of missing out. She, she's mm -hmm. always buying something and having it delivered to her door. I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't understand that psychology. I just yeah. don't. All right, Valentine, thank you. And, and you know, the reason that I asked Valentine that question is that it's clear to hear his commitment to uh, dealing with the climate change crisis. But one of the issues, I think, is how many people agree to make the changes that he feels are necessary. And so I was kind of curious about uh, about in his circle of family and friends. Let's go to Susan Ormiston, uh, who one of her portfolios is covering climate and you were at uh, the COP conference, uh, Susan. And, you know, one of the things I keep hearing from people is how unsettling it's been for them to, to see how warm, how hot temperatures have been through the year. And then the foundation of hearing that, you know, hottest month in years, the hottest year in decades and how difficult all that is. So at COP, do you think that and, and the extreme weather events kind of shifted the conversation at all at COP28? Yeah, that's a fair question. I mean, just to set the stage, uh, it's the UN-sponsored climate conference. This was the largest ever, 90,000 delegates and negotiators, Ian. It was massive in Dubai, in the United Emir Emir Arab Emirates, and it was led by a man who is sitting at the... Uh, chairmanship of a uh, renewable energy company for the UAE, but also he's the CEO of an oil company, the, the state's national oil company. So the big question was, can Sultan al-Jabber actually bridge the gap between um, fossil fuel producers, oil and gas producers, and climate advocates who want them to be out of business? Well, it went a small step towards that in including the words uh, transitioning away from fossil fuels in the future in this final document, which is has to be negotiated and agreed on by 190 countries, a seemingly impossible task. OPEC was urging its member countries to not have those words in that document. So it ended up in the document. It almost failed, but it ended up. But the real question out of these COP conferences is, is change happening happening fast enough given what we've all experienced this year in particular but for years um, with record heat this year record wildfires an ocean feeling like a hot tub in in at some time so the question is is change coming fast enough and how does it happen i was interested in valentine's question because one of the trends we're seeing in climate is that the people are trying to take governments and companies to court why? Because they feel like governments aren't moving fast enough to regulate change, and they believe regulation is one of the keys to success. So they're using the courts to try to force this issue further along the path faster. 
Susan Ormiston in Toronto in our uh, newsroom in the broadcast centre. We can hear a few people in the background who are also working here on December 31st. Uh, this is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanamansing live in Vancouver. And our question this week, what's the most important news story to you of 2023? What impact did it have on you? And, and which news story do you feel was important but didn't get enough attention? You can call us right now at 1-888-416-8333. And that's what James Posberg has done. He's in Humboldt, Saskatchewan. Hi, James. Hi, Ian. Yeah, I uh, basically, the, the, most, the, the story that I feel hasn't been getting enough attention is just how much Canadians are not paying attention to their government. They're not watching CPAC. They're not watching committee meetings. And when you do give them evidence of, oh, by the way, hey, the commission, the RCMP commissioner was at committee and he didn't even get to speak before they uh, uh, closed the meeting down. And it's always the Liberals and NDP and Bloc voting together. Like every time evidence of corruption comes up, it's closed down right away in committee. And there's, it's, it's frustrating <laughs> Because, of course, I'm a farmer. I spend a lot of time in the tractor, uh, you know, growing food and everything. And it's, it is just so, it's, it's, it's almost nefarious. Like, why is, it, like, everywhere Tr- uh, Trudeau or Jack, well, not Jack Singh, but everywhere Trudeau goes, he gets heckled. There's a large group of Canadians that don't want this guy in office anymore. And he's still there. And it's almost nefarious. Well, but nefarious in, in which way? I mean, he got his party uh, ended up winning the last election. He becomes prime minister, and until the next election, uh, his party stays in power. And as long he's as he's leader, he remains as prime minister. So, um, I, I don't know how that would be nefarious. How can you run a country when seventy percent of the people want you out of there? And yes, the election was in twenty twenty one. But now with these interest rate heights, and yes, there's a large group of people, like I've, through the Christmas holidays, I've been talking to them that have to renew their mortgages or can't renew their mortgages because if they lock, because there's this idea that the interest rates are going to go down in two years or in a year. There's like, there's a lot of, if, if it wasn't for the NDP constantly holding up this government, Mm-hmm. Trudeau, they, they they would have failed a confidence meeting, and you know it's it's you know a lot of crazy people, right wing people would say that uh, Jatmeet Singh is in there for his pension. Jatmeet Singh is a lawyer; he can make whatever the pension, the government pension, would pay him mm-hmm. in a matter of a couple of years. You know, it's nefarious. I hate using nefarious. It's interesting why. He, he won't uh, uh, bring the government down. Yeah. When, one, he would gain more seats, depending on when and, you know, what, what's the situation and whatnot else. But then again, you know, Canadians are just so, uh, the, 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 they're not watching their government. Yeah. They're All not right. holding the government accountable. James, I mean, the thing I definitely hear in your voice is the frustration. Makes me think, though, that towards the end of Stephen Harper's time as Prime Minister, there were a lot of people who would have, you probably 
wouldn't have been one of these people, but there were a lot of people who were expressing the same kind of frustration about his government. Um, and then we had an election. I remember talking to some of the conservative, or one in particular, conservative candidate in New Brunswick who said when he went door to door, he could tell the time for his party was up before the, you know, the votes rolled in. Um, things change, right? Opinions change, uh, support changes. And that's, uh, you know, elections are the place where we get a chance to deal with that. But thank you very much for uh, calling in and answering our question. What's the most important news story of 20? 2023, which one didn't get enough attention. On Cross Country Checkup, our number is 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us at 226-758-8924. We have three CBC journalists with us. And as you can probably guess, I'm going to Rosemary Barton right now, our chief political <laughs> correspondent. And Rosemary, you, you can take this question wherever you want. But I guess, you know, I, I do hear a lot of dissatisfaction with the Prime Minister. I do hear a lot of people asking, and, and even people who I think voted for him last time around and might identify as Liberals, but they're they're kind of thinking, okay, you know what, maybe the best before date is, is passed now and there needs to be a new leader. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they wonder, is, is that going to happen? So as I say, uh, you can take that uh, sort of topic anywhere you want. Yeah, I mean, listen, James is a farmer. Uh, He's in Saskatchewan. Uh, This isn't really a hotbed for the Liberal Party. So I I get that he's frustrated and angry and and feeling that frustration towards this government. I I would say a couple of things. First of all, the supply and confidence agreement that exists between the Liberals and the NDP um, can, can fall apart at any time. As soon as Jagmeet Singh says, I'm not getting what I want, or the Prime Minister decides he wants an election, off we go. But but that is how minority governments work. After an election, you can find dancing partners, and sometimes it's the NDP, and sometimes it's the Bloc. It is never the Conservatives, and that's how our system works. Um, so in theory, the next election will be sometime probably early in 2025, unless that deal falls apart. As for the Prime Minister's own um, issues and, and lack of popularity, I mean, that's real. Uh, you know, James is quite right. There are lots of people in this country who uh, are feeling frustrated with him and his government that they are not listening enough to uh, their concerns. And I think Pierre Poiliev has has done a really good job of um, taking that on and, and making people think that uh, Justin Trudeau is responsible for all the things that are happening in the world and in the country. Uh, the prime minister, when I interviewed him like 10 days ago, two weeks ago now, has no intention, at least publicly, of of leaving. And I I think that that is one of the stories to think about going into 2024. If he can't start to see some improvement in the polls, um, I I think it will become increasingly hard for him to hold on. There is no one there like a Paul Martin chomping at the bit, wanting to get rid of him. But there are people who are interested in the job. So I think there's probably a a two- or three-month window here for the prime minister where um, he has to start to see some improvements um, in in support from Canadians, and then he'll he'll stick around and he'll take another go at it. But you're right, um, Ian. You know, when you're eight nine years into governing, uh, people get a little tired of you, and and they aren't sure that you're doing enough for them. And I think that's what the Liberals are encountering right now. And they're going to have to test that eventually in an election, and and Canadians can decide whether they want to give them another chance or not. And it sounds like James does not, so I get that. <laughs> and and a good reminder, uh, Rosemary, that it is a minority government that. Uh, the Liberals remained in power, yeah. but they do so uh, with the support of uh, other parties, right? And so, um, yeah, yeah a, a win with an asterisk after it. But still, uh, Justin Trudeau is the Prime Minister. Uh, let's, uh, you know what, I'm going to bring in the other two panellists. Uh, first of all, Peter Armstrong, who is in Toronto. Peter, let me ask you about 
an underplayed story in the world of business. We've heard you talk so many times on the national and other platforms about uh, inflation and about interest rates. Is there anything in the world of business you feel was important but didn't get the attention it deserved? You know, Ian, I've been thinking a lot about that. And it's almost some of this is my own fault and people like me. But the resilience of the Canadian economy is a really important story. And it's something that got overshadowed by how rough a year it has been. And and I'm not trying to say that it wasn't rough. It was. And, And we have all the evidence. And we heard from people like James and people like him across the country that just feel like how much of his frustration is political and how much of it is economic. It's really hard to sort of tease all of that out. Um, But underlying all of the bad news has been a surprisingly resilient Canadian economy. The fact that we have seen inflation go from, what, 6% at the the beginning of this year, all the way down to 3.1% going into 2024. The fact that we have seen all of these things happen and all of these interest rates rise over the course of this year, and yet the economy didn't slip into a recession, speaks to a profound resilience in the Canadian economy that is going to be our best asset in this coming year and in the years ahead. The fact that uh, Canadian consumers are wary and they're a little scared and they're they're frustrated for sure, but they have a willingness to spend. And I think when they get that sign that interest rates are starting to come down and that inflation is is certainly under better control, if not all the way under control, there are all of these these underlying factors in the Canadian economy that that might just add up together to get us into the recovery even faster than we might have expected. There's all kinds of hedges to that too. We've got this wall of mortgage renewals that are coming at us and they're coming fast and they're coming hard. Um, but I do think the the in spite of all of the bad news, the resilience in the Canadian economy is something that I don't think we've talked enough about this year. Senior business reporter Peter Armstrong, one of our guests uh, for the next 90 minutes here on Cross Country Checkup. So too is Susan Ormiston, international climate correspondent for CBC. But as you mentioned earlier, Susan, as we all know, you were one of the reporters who uh, covered the Israel-Hamas war. And I think you mentioned you're going to be going back and doing more coverage of it. So you talked a little bit about uh, the war and uh, earlier in, in the half hour. But, but I, I want to ask you you about this moment in the conflict. I think I heard on the news earlier today that Benjamin Netanyahu has said that this is going to last for some time. It's going to continue as he's vowed all along until Hamas is uh, destroyed. But what about this moment in the conflict three months on? How critical is this timing right now? Well, the fog of war is as thick in the Middle East as it is in any war, Ukraine-Russia as an example. So what I'm suggesting is we're hearing the public face of the uh, of Israel, of Benjamin Netanyahu, saying publicly we are going to continue, we're going to hit harder until we eradicate Hamas. Many, many people believe that that objective is impossible, that you don't eradicate a movement, that in fact the scale and destruction of this war is giving rise to more Hamas-type groups who are um, enemies of Israel, uh, that it is uh, continuing on far too long, far too brutally for Israel to continue to justify and also for its biggest ally, the U.S. It's causing them problems. We are seeing this war in Gaza moving from the north to the central part of Gaza uh, and further to the south, they say, will happen. That is what they said they'd do uh, back almost two months ago now, Ian. We forget this was the policy of uh, the Israeli government. 
But Benjamin Netanyahu is facing pressure at home, too. There are uh, polls, uh, some polls coming out suggesting that most Israelis would like him to uh, resign from government, resign from leadership. They are very angry, Israelis, at his inability to protect them. The Hamas attack was brutal and quick and overwhelmed all the uh, Israeli security for that day. They still harbor that resentment. Um, it's very unlikely that that would happen during a war, but Netanyahu says some is uh, continuing on with with this war in part to save his political skin. That's that's an, op an opinion of some people. But we are at a critical point because of the level of destruction, the number of deaths, uh, 20,000 according to Hamas health ministries in Gaza, and also to the displacement of so many people, uh, millions in Gaza. They are being forced into a smaller and smaller piece of territory in the humanitarian crisis, as we've all heard, is just increasing um, by the day. So yes, things are going to have to break open at some point. And I'll just note, Ian, in closing that um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken from the U.S. is on his way to the Middle East again for his fourth trip there since the October 7th attack on Israel. And in his diplomatic pouch, it's believed, is an urging by the U.S. government, which is feeling the effects of this war, uh, saying that Israel needs to scale back, have more uh, targeted attacks if it continues this war, and to reduce the number of civilian casualties. And that's one message that the U.S. is bringing to Israel. Susan Ormiston, Peter Armstrong, and Rosemary Barton are all here live, unscripted. Uh, they also, and I hesitate, should I say, I'll say this, they can speak as long as they like. You know, normally we're telling them uh, 30 seconds, 40, like 45 seconds at the most, but uh, we can hear from them speak expansively about the news topics of the day, as long as any of you want to speak when I go back to you. Our question, what was the most important news story of 2023? Which story didn't get enough attention? Our number, one 888 8333. You'll hear reflections from various CBC colleagues throughout the program about the, the most important and most underrated sh uh, stories of 2023. Here's Laura Lynch, the host of What on Earth on CBC Radio. What is the biggest story of the year for me? Well, not surprisingly, it's the climate and stories that are related to our changing climate and our warming world. We certainly saw it in the country through the spring and summer especially. Um, wildfire in Alberta, May the 6th, the province declared a state of emergency. More wildfire in the Northwest Territories. Yellowknife was evacuated. Wildfire in BC, people evacuated 35,000 of them in and around Kelowna. We know the smoke drifted into the United States and people were getting a sense of what uh, smoke and climate change would mean for them there as well. And there was flooding in Nova Scotia in July, 250 millimeters of rain in 24 hours. So climate change has come home to us. And another unfortunate outcome of those wildfires is that Canada likely tripled its carbon emissions footprint from all of the smoke that was created by all of those fires. So not a great year for climate change, but uh, there are people pushing for solutions to it. And as I've been told by many, there are reasons for hope in the world of climate change. That is Laura Lynch, the host of CBC Radio's What on Earth? What's your answer to our show question today? Maybe you were directly impacted by an extreme weather event this year. Give us a call. Our question today, what's the most important news story of 2023? Which one didn't get enough attention? Our phone number is 888-416-8333. Our text number is 226 
758-8924. Lots of calls. So let me get to a few of those now. Joseph McDonald is in Oakville, Ontario. Hi, Joseph. Hello. Thank you for putting me on. Uh, your host for What on Earth, that's fitting that she is there to answer my concern. Maybe she can enlighten me. But I think the biggest story by far is the, I'm going to call it knee-jerk reaction of government to the climate concerns. Specifically, there is a crisis where people cannot get clean natural gas and they're reverting to coal burning to provide energy. And that's happening in Germany, uh, Japan, uh, China, India. All of those countries are, are crying for Canadian natural gas, but because we have refused to give it to them, our government, they're burning coal now. China is notoriously, but Germany is digging up, uh, you know, thousand-year-old villages to get at the lignite coal. Lignite is a particularly dirty form of coal, and they're burning it. You know, you've got German citizens running into the forest, chopping down trees to burn them because they they have no natural gas. Mm-hmm. So, and then the this edict about making all cars electric, how are we supposed to charge these batteries? And furthermore, um, the batteries are a horrific assault on the environment. They're made by destroying uh, jungles and forests with third world child labor being used. Um, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of forethought and it's a very misguided, um, I, I hate to use the term virtue signaling that's going on, you know? Yeah, well, so how important do you think coverage of the climate crisis is? It's very important. I just think that there's a lot of mislabeling of Im- improper land use and ca- and blaming it on carbon emissions and a climate crisis. For instance, in BC, you know, we've got a century of denuding uh, mountainsides and draining marshlands and wetlands and swamps and putting in farms and subdivisions and putting bridges across uh, rivers. And then all of a sudden, as the the Haida nation in their legend says, you know, these atmospheric rivers come in, which they always have. It's not a new thing. But now the water washes down the mountain and wipes out the subdivisions and farms and, you know, washes away the the bridges. Uh, That's nothing. That's not a, a... carbon-induced climate catastrophe. Yeah. That's an idiotic land use phenomenon. Yeah, well, one last My question opinion. for you, Joseph. I mean, one thing I often hear from reporters, particularly reporters with climate expertise, is that no individual storm can be attributed to climate, climate change, but climate change yeah. is certainly responsible for uh, more and stronger storms that we're having, which lead to, among other things, atmospheric rivers. Um, how do you feel when you hear that analysis? I just think study uh, the Haida legends. The atmospheric rivers are nothing new. It's mm-hmm. how they affect the land that's, yep. that's changing. That's my opinion, but okay. I, it requires a lot more study. We we definitely need to be getting to real science to figure out what is and what isn't true, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have uh, Susan Ormiston here, and I'm not going to go to you right now, Susan, but keep that call in mind if you want to talk about the the link between science uh, and uh, climate change reporting. But we have so many calls. I'd like to get through some more of those right now. Richard Bradley is in Moore Falls, Ontario. Hi, Richard. Hey, how are you today? Good. Where is Moore Falls? 
uh, Moore Falls is uh, about 15 scenic minutes south of Minden, Ontario. Okay. In fact, I'm looking across the lake right now. I can see the falls from here. Nice, nice. Uh, so what do you see as, as the most important news story of 2023? Well, for our little part of the world, and in fact across the country it's been pretty well covered, is, is emergency departments, uh, like the healthcare crisis in general, doctors, emergency departments. And I, I admit I feel horrible for the overloaded emergencies, the ones that are, you know, uh, running just on, on empty. But the reality in our little world is is we don't have one anymore. Hmm. Um, because on June 1st, after a, a six weeks of notification uh, from our HHS Halliburton Highlands Health Services Board, they shut down our eMERGE, of, of which was fully staffed with doctors and and never closed for for a minute um so we this entire community and i know it's a bigger problem across the country uh the part of our story that really didn't get covered very well is the fact that we were fully staffed um in that particular location and it was the other in the other emergent halliburton that was going through a staffing crisis and they tried to transfer the staff over, including the doctors and the doctors who are drop-ins from other larger hospitals, refused to go. Mm-hmm. And now now the Ontario government is propping up um, an emergency department to the potential expense of half a million dollars a month because they can't staff it without paying huge bonuses. Yeah. Um, to people in Halliburton. So it's, it's, I mean, it is a crisis for our community without a doubt. Yeah, it's, so it's, a, it's a local clinic. it's a local situation, but I think it, it, it'll resonate uh, with a lot of people across the country, and especially in smaller communities. So let's hope you don't need uh, to go to an emergency department. But if you did, Richard, uh, how long would that take? Uh, for me, it's about 45 minutes to the closest. And again, that would be a very small one. Uh, I'm about Mm, a little under an hour from Lindsay or Aurelia or Bracebridge, Huntsville. Like I, I would, if I had the choice, and I hope I do, um, I would go to the larger centers just because usually when you go to the smaller one, which was okay, which is kind of like a mass unit, they stabilize you and send you to the bigger centers anyway. But mm-hmm. I would just be, a, you know, sort of, I don't want to go 45 minutes to be sent an hour and a half south again. Yeah, no kidding. Um it's and and in those you know that actually I'll be honest being on a panel like this today mm-hmm. um, actually is a strain on my heart just because um, being on the phone with all of you who are so learned knowledgeable and and uh, such great orators of your subjects it's uh, it's a little overwhelming if I wasn't retired I'd put it on my resume <laughs> well you don't sound overwhelmed at all and you certainly are very eloquent in uh, talking about your uh, situation and let's hope for good health in 2024 so that uh, you don't have to worry about how far you are from the nearest uh, emergency department but Richard thank you very much uh, for calling my, my last point if I can get it sure. is right now I, I'm afraid that the Ontario healthcare system is defined by the by the terminology it's better than nothing for example, we have an urgent care clinic that is sometimes open, and people say, "Well, it's better than nothing." But mm. healthcare should not just be better than nothing. Healthcare, you know, should be a whole lot better than that. 
Well, there's lots to talk about when it comes to healthcare and when it comes to our topic this week, which is the important news stories of 2023 and those which didn't get enough attention. And, uh, you know, you talk about emergency departments. There are also stories about uh, how many Canadians can't find, can't get a family doctor and uh, and foreign trained doctors who are here, some of whom can't get the certification they need to practice medicine. So all of those got a certain amount of coverage this past year, but I'm sure there are people listening who feel that it didn't get enough coverage. I'm Ian Hanamansing. We're live here on Cross Country Checkup. Our number is 1-888-416-8333. You can also reach us by going online, cbc.ca slash aircheck. That's what Kylene Ennis did from Vancouver and wrote news that didn't get enough coverage is how Canadians are helping Ukraine's war effort. My family, for example, checks in and sends money to our cousin just outside of Kiev. We provide a listening ear, empathy and moral support, as well as money, which gets used to help soldiers our family knows to, for example, buy a bulletproof vest, which are hard to come by, or maintain their personal vehicle needed by some to get themselves to the front line. Also on air check, Phil Fraken in Rosslyn, British Columbia says, where was the news coverage on World Cup downhill mountain biking or any mountain biking discipline? A young Canadian, Jackson Goldstone, finished his rookie season in second place in the overall standings. Mountain biking is a huge sport in Canada. It's practiced coast to coast. We are a world-renowned destination for it. I will say, Phil, I think about this topic generally a lot. There are so many Canadians who are elite in, in sports, in music, in, in the arts. Uh, some get coverage, some don't. And uh, yeah, there are a lot of uh, deserving people out there who deserve uh, a little bit more attention than they're getting. Catherine Hamill, also via air check. She's in Kincardine, Ontario. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I should be able to pronounce it. Made is what she identifies as uh, the big story of the year. The discussion and focus seems to have stalled in 2023. That's uh, medically assisted death. I understand the issues to be addressed in March as it relates to those with treatment resistant severe mental illness. The next step needs to address a predetermination while cognitive facilities are intact for those concerned about dementia. Boomers 60 and older make up 19% of the population and some wish to have the opportunity of made should dementia be their fate. And and the producer of our program, Richard Goddard, reminded me today uh, that, uh, or maybe not reminded me, but said he listened to the show that we did on Made here on Cross Country Checkup earlier this year. You can find it by going to the CBC Listen app. And he said uh, it was a pretty powerful program and uh, worth a re-listen, even for those of us who worked on it. So I recommend if you're interested in that topic, that you go to the CBC Listen app and, uh, and uh, check out that show. This is Cross Country Checkup. We're live on CBC News Network and CBC Radio. And back to the phones, 1-888-416-8333. John Wilson is in Cape Breton. Hi, John. How are you doing? Good, good. You'd like to talk about a story that you feel deserved more attention. Yes, I, I think one of the biggest stories that haven't been covered is the lack of knowledge Canadians have about their own history. Mm-hmm. And, and because we know that things, a lot of things don't happen overnight. And to give you an example, back in 1975, I got a mortgage rate for 13.5%, and I thought I was doing great because <laughs> the bank interest at the time was 19.6. Wow. Everybody thinks 5% is bad, and they're going to renew their interest. They should thank God that their interest rate is at 5% because it wasn't like that back in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. And, and then they, like, they talk about uh, responsibility. Like the, the uh, federal government says, it's not our responsibility housing. Well, up until 1987, it was. 
And in 1987, the federal government downloaded the responsibility for housing to the provinces. Then in 1993, one of the last things Brian Mulroney did, and he's conservatives at the time, that one of the last things he did is said it's the federal government's getting out of housing, and they cut the federal housing money off the provinces. That's why for the last 30 years, you haven't seen provincial buildings uh, going up, like uh, low rentals. You don't see uh, senior citizens' housing being built. All the things that were being built up until that time, you don't see them being built anymore because the federal money was cut off to provinces. Yeah. John, then, when, then, when, we, when we talk about housing stories, and we've certainly uh, focused on that topic on Cross Country yes. Checkup, we often, uh, you know, we try to be as national as possible, but certainly the situation is so acute in Toronto and Vancouver, it ten- and a lot of people live in those two cities. So we end up talking about that a lot. What's the housing situation these days in, in your part of Cape Breton? Well, in our area here, we're, we're uh, like we call it, a rural area, depressed area. Uh, when you see everybody driving around for the holidays, it doesn't look like it's depressed any. But, but, uh, <laughs> but the big thing there is is that our, our, our housing here is very, very low. And uh, like to give you an example, uh, back, uh, say, for instance, like in, in the 60s, uh, building a brown home from scratch, windows, everything completed, would cost a person around $6,000. And uh, today, and that's a three-bedroom home. Yeah. So, and today you look at the prices, everybody tells you how bad it is. And, uh, but one of the big reasons that you have is that when you cut off the money and public housing and low-cost housing and private housing, is is cut off. That money is cut off so that you don't have the co-op groups. Mm-hmm. Like I built my home in uh, the mid seventies in a co-op group, yeah. and we built our homes for uh, at that time uh, for around ten thousand to eleven thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, but we got about forty percent off uh, off materials because of being in a group. Mm-hmm. We were able to bargain. And so that was one of the things that we were able to do. Those things are, are available today, but you don't have the backing from the banks and the, and the different financial organizations in order for people to be able to go out and do the things that we used to be able to do because they're not being backed by the federal government anymore. Yeah. John, so, thank you very so much. That's, that's very important. And like the health care, to give yeah. you an example with health care, uh, back in the mid-'70s too, uh, uh, the... Uh, the Liberals were in power at the time, the same thing. And uh, when interest rates were high, then uh, Pierre Trudeau decided that he was going to cut the 50-50 agreement, the cost-sharing agreement with health care with the provinces. The provinces' answer to that was to cut the training for medical professions, like doctors, mm-hmm. lawyer, uh, doctors, uh, nurses, medical uh, uh, um, yep. lab people. So their idea was to cut training them. Yep. So here we are, here we are, 50 years later, the doctors that were there at the time are now 50 years into their practice and they're retiring and not enough, not enough uh, doctors and nurses and that were trained in between because the schools for them were being closed. Yeah. Like here John, in Nova Scotia, we lost about 17 nurses training yeah. centers. Now, when you take even at the minimum 30, 30 nurses a year for, for that length of time yes. in 17 places... That's thousands upon thousands of nurses that we lost because the federal government cut the money off the provinces. Point well taken, John. Thank you very much for calling in. And John makes a lot of good points, but one of the general ones is the importance of uh, history to put things in context to better understand some things like the doctor shortage now, uh, but also sometimes just to compare things. So 
I think he said that he had renewed his mortgage for 13.5% uh, in the mid to late 70s. Uh, and at one point, of course, mortgages got up to like 18.5, 19% in Canada. Hard to imagine, right? On the other hand, the housing prices, even when you correct it for inflation, were so much less than they are now, although that doesn't, it provides very little comfort to the people who think back to uh, when they or their parents lost their homes because of the high mortgage rates in the early 80s. This is Cross Country Checkup. Our question, what is the most important news story of 2023? Which ones didn't get enough attention? I'm going to go to the panel of my colleagues uh, in in about uh, less than 10 minutes time at the top of the hour, but I do want to go back to the phone calls. Eamon Oweda is in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Hi, Eamon. Hi, Ian. Thank you for having me. Thank you for calling in. What, what to you is uh, the, either the top story or the, the story that's not getting the attention it deserves? Um, for me, uh, the first and the top story for me, um, because it impacts us uh, personally, is the war in Gaza right now. Uh, our families, from originally from Gaza, my parents mm-hmm. um, had three cousins killed by snipers. And uh, from my wife's side, who's also from Gaza, uh, she's had uh, her, her parents' cousins killed through uh, a bombing against their home uh, where eight members of the family were uh, were killed. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it was pretty brutal. And the intensity and the scale and the magnitude of this war just um, going by, not just the impact that, that it has on us, but also as people who, who come from originally from Gaza, but also through my co- network of colleagues and so on. Uh, it seems to me like the scale and magnitude of this war is something that is unprecedented in the recent past. I mean, we've seen reports that the the equivalent of three nuclear bombs. Um, There's other reports of 70% of the entire town being destroyed, which is Gaza. So to me, it's a a really striking example of, you know, how could this happen in 2023? Mm -hmm. It would never hit me this hard. I'm 40 years old. And, uh, you know, I think I've seen a lot, but I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, listen, it, it, I mentioned it right at the top of the program. Susan Ormiston, who's one of the reporters, one of the many CBC reporters who's been over there covering this at times, uh, mentioned it as well. This has been uh, a terrible story. There's no question about that. And the level of violence has been horrific. And the, uh, the, the victims, you know, many of whom mm-hmm. on both sides, uh, both right. uh, from the Hamas attack and also in Gaza, many of the, the victims are children. Um, so it is, uh, it is a difficult story. It's a story that, that has received a lot of coverage, although I feel, Eamon, you wish it got more coverage. Yeah, and that's where maybe I had a question for Susan mm-hmm. and your panel um, that you can comment on. I, uh, I for one, and I know a lot of friends feel feel similar. Uh, we we do uh, tend to compare the intensity and the magnitude and the scale of the suffering on both sides. In mm-hmm. Gaza, there are no fully functional hospitals, whereas in Israel, there are fully functional hospitals. There is no civilian structure. There's no infrastructure in Gaza, or even no roads to get. The, the aid across, but in Gaza there's an airport that still functions, right? And so, in, in, in my view at least, how do reporters ensure fair coverage? And I've had to go to, you know, things like maybe, I don't know what you'd call them, watchdogs for media coverage, mm-hmm. like, the, like The Breach um, is a website that looks at coverage of, you know, two sides of a story. And to see that, for example, um, the, the, the side of suffering in the, on the Palestinian side, the suffering, the stories from families, 
um, the, the Canadians who have relatives there, to which extent um, we've been covering their stories, went to the other side. I mean, I don't think a 50-50 uh, equal coverage would, would give justice to our story yeah. uh, of, of, of this magnitude yeah. of uh, damage on the, on the side of Gaza. Yeah, you know, it's a really important question, Eamon, and, and you, you pose it in a very thoughtful way, and I appreciate that. And I want, I'd like you to stay on the line if you could, because sure. I'm going to bring Susan Ormiston into this. But, but before I do, Susan, I'll just say, I mean, I know we spend a lot of time in our newsrooms um, trying to figure out how best to cover this story. And it's not about a 50-50 split, Eamon. You're absolutely right. That's not, uh, that, that's, that would be an illusion of, of balance and fairness just to arbitrarily split at 50-50. Uh, it comes down to all kinds of things, including even access. And so, Susan, um, if I may, let me ask you kind of like when you were over there, um, how you were based, well, most of the time when I had a chance to speak to you, you were back in Jerusalem. But as you went around trying to cover the story, uh, first of all, you're dealing with, uh, you know, dangers, but also, I believe, like virtually impossible for you to get into Gaza. But you tell me about that, about uh, what it was like covering the story on the ground. Well, I want to echo you, um, Eamon. Thank you for your call and thank you for presenting it so thoughtfully. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, discussion about this war and its coverage, and uh, some of it has not been as thoughtful. And I do appreciate that because it, it really provokes a better discussion. So first and foremost, as you well know, Eamon, we can't go to Gaza. We physically cannot go there. It's the most frustrating and um, horrible circumstance for a reporter to be in. It's not a question of whether CBC, the CBC security assessment would let us go into Gaza. It's we can't get there. There's been one reporter that I know that's gone in independently for a couple of hours I, uh, through the, the aid route, but not stayed. There have been few reporters who've gone in at the behest of the IDF. CBC was not one of those. Uh, but other than that, we can't get there. And it's, it's, it's unthinkable, really, uh, as a storyteller uh, and ha someone who's been to a lot of wars and conflicts, because the area, the physical area is so small. I mean, we are uh, an hour and a half from a border that is contested, and we can't cross it in any way. So this has been the main um, deterrent to being able to actually do what we do, which is go there, be there, and report what we see. So... What our responsibility has been and what we've objectively tried to do on, on very many stories, almost every story in, in a news perspective, is how do we represent what's going on? So we talk to people in Gaza. We phone them. We Even with poor internet, many times, as you well know, internet that's been completely cut off, um, Gaza's has been cut off from the world on several occasions uh, during this war. But the other times, we work very hard to establish communication with people who are living it. We are using videos that come out verified um, as, as well as, as can be by major media uh, companies to uh, make sure that they are accurate, um, a reflection of what's going on. We use those social videos that are coming out. We speak to doctors in hospitals that are being bombed or attacked. And we do that um, without the assurance of being there ourselves as um, people who can watch. And as you know, the number of reporters and media inside Gaza um, has been one of the worst uh, uh, of any recent war, the number of casualties for people who actually work as journalists inside Gaza. Mm -hmm. So Susan, there's those yeah, kinds of difficulties that 
come into this. Yeah, um, it's uh, the top of the hour. Normally on CBC News Network, this is when we turn to uh, Rosemary Barton Live. But we have Rosemary Barton Live on the program. We're going to hear from her in just a moment. This is hour two of our look back at the top stories of 2023 on Cross Country Checkup. And for those of you listening on radio, the program, of course, continues as well. Which one do you think should be at the top of the list? Which news stories didn't get the attention they deserved? Our number is one 888 Or you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. And along with us is Rosemary Barton, Peter Armstrong, and Susan Ormiston. And Susan, they're just talking in response to uh, a caller, Eamon, about coverage of, uh, of Gaza. Eamon, I think you're still on the line. Uh, yeah. Did you want to respond to what Susan said? No, I, I really I appreciate what uh, what she has. I, I used to listen to her a lot, actually, when she was mm-hmm. reporting back from uh, from Jerusalem. And I do appreciate the, the amount of process that she has to go through to ensure that uh, she can cover uh, the Gaza side as well. Um, maybe if I could add a question that maybe Rosemary Barton can address, because I've also listened to her through the panelists that she sure. brings on routinely. And I wonder, in terms of, a, you know, when you, when you do bring in a panelist and you feel that they could be biased to one side, how, how do you fix that? How do you ensure that your panelists are also representative of both sides? Um, because people can take sides. And so as a reporter, how do you ensure that here, when you bring in your, your an, analysts, panelists, uh, political uh, uh, commentators, um, that you do represent both sides, or at least, you know, that you have a neutral voice that can critique both sides. Eamon, thank you very much for your call and thank you very much for your questions. And Rosemary Barton is live on our program here now. And uh, Rosemary, what would you say to Eamon? Yeah, I think he's probably talking about at issue here where we have uh, talked about the Middle East, but I I obviously have panels on on my program as well. Um, You know, when we're inviting um, particularly commentators and columnists on to talk about issues and this issue as well, they are allowed their opinion uh, about these issues, right? They have a different job than, than what we do, which is to provide a sort of an objective analysis based on facts and information we've gathered. They are allowed to take that information and form an opinion and express that opinion. Um, so, uh, you know, I do try and be cognizant when we're putting together panels or when I'm moderating at issue that, that everyone gets enough time to make their points and that we get a diverse sort of perspective. And I'm sort of the, the, the arbiter of that, the referee who tries to offer some objectivity and some facts to, to back things up or to uh, push back against what someone is saying. You know, this issue in particular, I'm, I'm sure we've all experienced it, is uh, very emotional for, for many, many people in this country. Um, and I I think we heard that from Eamon, too. So it, we are very, very aware of that. And, and we try our best to to present what's happening and to allow people as well to uh, present their own their own perspectives. I know on, on your program, too, Ian, and on mine, when you have, quote unquote, real people calling in, they have real uh, views based on their own lived experience. So those perspectives are just as important on on our programs. And I'll just say, finally say, one of the things that I also try to do is, <clears throat> is push panelists to talk about how it is uh, being viewed politically in this country, because obviously there has been fallout politically on the government's position around the Middle East and its evolving position, and also to weigh in on how it's affecting Canadians to try and make sure we put that lens over top of this story, because um, that's important too. Thank you very much, Rosemary Barton. And I would say to those of you who are watching and listening, keep a couple of things in mind. First of all, we really do have 
lots of conversations in our newsroom because we care about our coverage and we we pay attention to uh, criticisms that we get and try to you know improve where we see areas to improve but but another key point I would make you know in picking up on something rosemary said um no individual voice at any moment in time is going to be balanced and nuanced necessarily. Uh, we look for balance and nuance and accuracy, well, balance, I would say, over time. Uh, the accuracy part is if you do have somebody, as Rosemary says, let's say, involved in the Israel-Hamas uh, dispute, uh, they have a very particular point of view quite often, but we try very hard over time to have it balanced. And balance doesn't necessarily mean 50-50, although the that word suggests that, but it means having different points of view that are credible and uh, and over time we want to make sure that those points of view are articulated. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, let me take a look at some of our online reaction and comments. Larry Emmerich via AirCheck is in Vancouver. He says, population growth is a story that didn't get enough attention this year. According to Stats Canada, Canada's population grew to over 40 million people on July 1st, 2023. We cannot sustain that level of immigration without building infrastructure such as housing to accommodate it. Peter Grauer uh, via Aircheck from Victoria says a story that wasn't covered enough is video game industry layoffs and growing budgetary issues. That's interesting. And Helen Workington via Aircheck from Winnipeg says the ongoing story hardly covered, certainly inadequately, concerns electric vehicles, specifically depleted battery disposal, as well as the potentially devastating environmental effects of resource exploitation on a widespread scale. We've already had a caller talking about electric vehicles and whether uh, enough attention, and I think he feels not enough attention, is uh, paid to some of the environmental costs of uh, EVs. So something we may get a chance to talk more about on the program as we discuss uh, what's the most important news story of 2023. Which one do you feel didn't get enough attention? Our number on Cross Country Checkup is one 888-416-8333. You can, as the people you just heard, go to cbc.ca slash aircheck or text us at 226-758-8924. Paul Vanderschilden is in Toronto. Hi, Paul. Hello there. Thank You're you calling us. Me. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, patiently waiting to, to speak. And you, you have a, a suggestion for a story that I think you feel isn't getting enough attention. Yeah, um, so it has to do with American politics. And um, yes, I do see on CBC, um, often Rosemary Barton on Rosemary Barton Live, will have American guests um, discussing American politics. Often it's, you know, on, you know, current, uh, you know, dysfunction within, uh, you know, the American legislature. Um, but we we don't often see... Um, you know, discussion regarding the extent to which Trump is posing a risk to um, democracy in general um, in the states, and you know, even how um, you know how he 
really has gone about his politics in a manner to actually, you know, make that come to happen, right? He, you know, the, the dysfunction that has been occurring in the States for many years now, uh, Trump saw that as an opportunity to, um, you know, to, to be seized in terms of, um, you know, in my view, um, promoting um, dictatorship mm-hmm. in a very subtle manner. Um, and I feel that, that Americans are sleepwalking into a dictatorship and yeah. that, um, you know, the the, uh, the threat that that poses to Western stability, um, you know, the manner in which global politics has been functioning over the last many decades mm-hmm. is at risk. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, like I, I look at American politics with fear. Yeah. You know, some of our some of our best reporters, Paul, are in our Washington bureau. So Susan, Paul Hunter, Katie Simpson, hope I'm not forgetting you anyway, just uh, really strong stories that they do from there. But let me tell you something. Uh, When we have uh, one of them, especially if it's a story that ends up being near the top of the national I almost right. always will get a few emails from people who will say, we're a Canadian newscast, not an American newscast. Why are you covering American politics? Paul, what would you say to CBC listeners and viewers who feel that we shouldn't be covering what's happening in the States politically? Oh, boy. Well, maybe they're not seeing the seriousness of the situation. Um, and yes, I mean, I, I, I do appreciate all the coverage that CBC does do on American politics um, and and I understand the balance that has to be struck when coming up with you know top news stories, um, but uh, you know I guess with the American election approaching, um, you know there probably will be you know more and more coverage. But uh, yeah, what I would say to CBC listeners who who complain about such co- coverage, I mean, uh, we we all need to see as Canadians, you know the the threat that that Trump. Um, really does pose mm-hmm. and um you know we have to be aware of it and and we have to be aware of that american style politics which i fear is is coming to canada mm-hmm. um and uh you know if we're not a, if we're not aware of you know the manipulation that take, takes place and um you know i, I I, I see there to be, you know, potentially dire consequences for all of us. Well, Paul, we and, certainly do feel that the American political story is an important one. And uh, and I hear what you're saying. And it's, I guess for us, the balance is how much coverage is enough or too much. And of course, the answer to that is different to different people. But I really appreciate hearing your perspective. On Cross Country Checkup this week, on the final day of 2023, we're asking you, what is the most important news story of the past year? Which one didn't get enough attention? I'm going to go back to calls in just a moment. one 416 8333 if you'd like to get into the queue. But let's go back to our panel now. We're live with Rosemary Barton, CBC's chief political correspondent, Peter Armstrong, senior business reporter, for CBC News and Susan Ormiston, senior correspondent for CBC. And and Rosemary, um, I asked your two colleagues what they thought from their beats, what was the uh, story that didn't get enough attention this year. Um, Politically in Ottawa, I mean, you live the Ottawa story all the time. Is there a story there you feel didn't get enough attention? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's always sort of hard to talk about because it, it, it's not that it didn't get attention. It's probably that it's just not in the zeitgeist enough, um, that we're not talking about it enough. And and that is a lot of the work that my colleague Murray Brewster has been doing for decades, but particularly this year about uh, military readiness. So there is, first of all, a, a conversation around our country's defense spending. Uh, people may know that the government is looking to cut fat in different departments. That includes the Department of National Defense. And, and Canada has made a commitment to hit that uh, 2% of GDP uh, target that NATO has asked from all its contributors and says it remains committed to that. Hard to hard to put those two things together, how you're going to cut fat and still get to growing your budget over time and hitting that NATO target. And then there's some things that, that the chief of the defense staff, Wayne Ayer, has been talking about and sort of raising the alarm bells about. And I'm sure those things are connected to the budget restraints. But he, he has been talking about the fact that we are not not uh, replenishing our own supplies like many countries uh, and allies of Ukraine. We are shipping lots of things overseas, including ammunition, and many ammunition companies can't sort of keep pace with what is needed. So it means that Canada and other countries don't replenish to the right amount. So there's some questions there about whether we would be ready if, if, we, we, if something were to happen and we needed something. Um, and then the broader question about recruitment. Uh, recruitment in the Canadian Armed Forces is also not improving in spite of alarm bells uh, being rung for many, many years, ever since I've been in Ottawa. And, and that also is of real concern because Canadian Armed Forces, as, as we all know, are not only asked to help defend this country and NATO partners and other places, but they also increasingly help Canadians during natural disasters. They help during the pandemic. And so there's lots of reasons why we should also be concerned that people don't want to join the military anymore and why that might be and how we can encourage people to do that. So it's not that it's not out there. As I said, Murray's been doing an enormous amount of coverage about that. Um, but I think it's one of those things that we don't think about a lot because it's not necessarily in our lives a lot. Um, and I think it's something people should should be concerned about and should be thinking about, especially as we head into a budget round where we may see um, different government departments uh, feel a bit of a pinch as the government tries to get spending under control. Yeah, what a great answer. I hadn't thought a lot about it, though. I've watched <laughs> Murray's uh, pieces yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for mentioning that. Peter, let sure. me bring you in. According to RBC, 60% of mortgages in Canada, 60% are set to renew over the next three years. So how, how big a story is that going to be heading into 2024? I, I think it will probably be the defining story of this coming year, right? That's 2.2 million households are yet to renew. Now, over the course of 2024, we should emphasis on should, see those interest rates begin to fall. In fact, Ian, they have begun to fall. I was just looking at a website uh, while I was listening to, to Rosie talk. Um, uh, Ratehub.ca has the five-year fixed rate of mortgage that you can get below 5%, 4.89%. It's been a long time since we've seen that. So maybe the, uh, the, the hit that all of those, that wall of mortgages is coming in to renew at these higher rate, rates isn't going to be as high as it was at the peak. Uh, where we end up on interest rates. Uh, you know, I, I spoke to economists from Desjardins who have their forecast is that the Bank of Canada's key overnight lending rate, which kind of sets the stage for all the other mortgage rates out there, that they expect that to come down to 3.5% by the end of 2024, all the way down to 2.25% by the end of 2025. But that's a, that's a longer term forecast than I think a lot of people are, are willing to bet on. Um, but look, I think we'll see that, that begin to fall over the course of 
of the first half of the year and then accelerate through the second half. But that's still going to be a massive hit into the economy. And remember, we knew this all along. You and I have talked about this before, that you know, monetary policy, the change in interest rates, it generally takes about 18 months to work its way into the economy, to get fully absorbed into the economy. And you think back, well, we started raising rates in March of 2022. That's, oh yeah, it's about 20 months ago. So <laughs> we're only just starting to see the impact we've seen inflation start to come down. We've seen the economy slow, but with the uh, the impact that it's really going to have on the me's and the use of the world, uh, that's still to come. And I think that is going to be the defining story of 2024. And how the Canadian economy can weather that storm is, I think, one of the most important political questions, one of the most important economic questions. And remember, this isn't just Canada going through this. The U.S. is going through this. Europe is going through this. The entire world struggled with inflation, responded by raising interest rates, and is now beginning to see the full impact of all those interest rates really start to kick in. So there, there, there's a huge global component to this. Um, and, and how Canada deals with it how the rest of the world deals with it will have an impact on how we do here in Canada because we're such a, an exporting nation. So there's a lot of moving parts to that, but I think how we weather that storm is going to be the big story of 2024. Senior business reporter, Peter Armstrong. Thank you. Let's go to Susan Ormiston. And you know what, Susan, I guess I did not ask you, especially uh, from an international perspective of a story that you feel maybe was underreported or didn't get enough attention. What, what would you... What would you suggest that story is? Yeah, well, I, I too was interested in Rosie's uh, response. I, it's a good one, things to think about in 2024. Um, you know, a lot of my work has been international over the past number of years, and so my lens is out there. And uh, remember Afghanistan? Uh, you know, we watched, the world watched um, with that massive exodus out of Afghanistan two years ago now this fall, the fall that just passed. Well, what caught my attention was another Afghan-based story that happened this November, November 1st, in fact. Pakistan decreed an expulsion of around a million undocumented Afghans who've been living in Pakistan, some from the recent exodus after the Taliban took over, but some from the Soviet invasion. You know, decades ago, the children of people who fled during those conflicts after 50 years of wars and conflict in Afghanistan, there's been lots of movement across that border. Pakistan said, get out, basically, and they are returning Afghans to a country some have never lived in and many others don't want to go back to for understandable reasons. Women can't get jobs, meaningful jobs. People, girls can't get educated beyond grade school, and they're returning to a country whose economy has collapsed uh, after the Taliban took over and international aid dried up to, to a large extent. So this is creating instability in the world, Ian. We're, that's what we're talking about here. These mass movements of people, not just from Pakistan to Afghanistan into tents on Torkham border with uh, Pakistan, but also in Gaza with these huge tents as more than a million, maybe two million people in Gaza have been displaced. This displacement of people creates instability. And so climate and wars and conflict will create movements of people. And that is something that all of us should be paying attention to because instability leads to huge problems in the future. So the movement of people, and in this case, watched Afghanistan for many, many years. And this one was quite dramatic. And because it happened on November 1st during the Israeli-Hamas war, 
it wasn't reported very much. Hmm, another really interesting answer. We're live with our year-end panel here, Rosemary Barton, Peter Armstrong, and the woman you just heard speaking, Susan Ormiston, and they are here to answer questions you may have to weigh in on stories that you feel mattered most this year or maybe didn't get the attention that they deserve. And uh, while major events make headlines, health stories affect Canadians day in, day out. We have some really strong uh, journalists in our uh, health a department or, uh, uh, yeah, that, that cover health stories. And one of them is Lauren Pelly, CBC senior health and medical reporter. And here's her reflection on her coverage this year. The biggest health story of the year is really a collection of a lot of different stories that you might not have noticed. Some of them flew under the radar. An ER closure in one hospital or a staffing shortage somewhere. Really all across the country, we're seeing our healthcare system under strain. Millions of Canadians say they don't have a family doctor. And there are still long wait lists for surgeries, big backlogs after the pandemic. And healthcare workers remain in really short supply. And the ones who are left are getting more and more burnt out or leaving the public system altogether to work for private agencies sometimes who charge hospitals millions of dollars every year. If there's another COVID-level threat or even a relatively busy respiratory virus season this winter, we're in trouble because the whole system is operating on this shaky foundation. So on the flip side, in terms of another story that deserves more attention, it's how we solve this. What can governments and healthcare leaders do? And what can we learn from other countries? I don't think there's a quick fix here, but we have to keep talking about possible solutions. That is Lauren Pelly, CBC Senior Health and Medical Reporter, weighing in on our show question today. If you were directly affected by doctor shortages or emergency department closures this year, and we've already heard one caller who talks about that, or if you felt the impact of any other major news story, give us a call now. We still have 40 minutes left on this topic. No specific AMA, but the whole show is an AMA with our three panelists here. Our question to you, what was the most important news story of 2023? Which one didn't get enough attention? Our phone number is 1-888-416-8333. Our text number is 226-758-8924. Calling us from Ottawa is Suzanne Lyon. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Ian. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. And you'd like to talk about a story that you feel hasn't gotten enough attention. I would, yeah. And it's a story that um, impacts me personally. So a few years ago, I did a DNA test and I found out that I was half Jewish. Hmm. And this was something I didn't know. Uh, and I live in Ottawa. Um, I have, uh, I've been a I'm a retired civil servant. I've been involved with the Ottawa Cartland District School Board with, with local politics. And what I've noticed, um, and, and what happened to me as a result of that was that I started paying more attention uh, to issues of anti-Semitism and to issues in general impacting Jewish Canadians and, um, and Jewish people in Ottawa. And um, what I have noticed, particularly since the beginning of the Hamas-Israel war, is the sharp increase in incidents of anti-Semitism in my community, in my province, across the country, um, in in our neighbors to the south in the U.S., uh, and incidents of Islamophobia, incidents of hate and, and divisiveness in general. And uh, as a person born in the 60s, you know, this concerns me, and it seems like it's a change. And just to pick up on a, one of the previous callers, Paul, I think, who talked about um, the impact of American politics on Canada, 
I feel like we're at a bit of a, a crossroads here and, and um, I don't see political parties stepping up the way I would like them to, to uh, address these kinds of sort of societal changes. And, and what I see really as, you know, as an existential threat to what I, to my view of, of and I think what a lot of people's view of, of being Canadian Mm -hmm. and things just seem nastier than they ever have in the past. And, um, and I guess I've been paying more attention because it it impacts me more directly. Shame on me for not, you know, being a better human all around. But uh, my question, I guess, to the political panel and, and in particular to, um, to Rosemary Barton, who, Rosie, I'm a huge fan, and it's been so cool being on the line listening to you guys talk. <laughs> it's like having a conversation with all of you. But my question is, what, what can, do you see this too? Do you feel this in conversations with other political analysts and commentators? Um, and what should leaders be doing uh, better or are they doing right? Um, and are you worried? Yeah. I'm worried. Suzanne, thank you for your call and stay stay on the line for a sec because it is kind of cool to, you know, you, you listen to Rosemary, you admire her as do I um, and, and you know, you may have a follow-up to what she uh, says here and, and Rosemary, um, what about uh, the rise in hate crimes but I guess from a political perspective, how Ottawa is responding to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say uh, what many Canadians maybe don't know is that anti-Semitic um, hate crimes are always had, and have traditionally always been the highest in this country, actually. Um, but they have obviously increased uh, tremendously since October 7th, though too have uh, Islamophobic um, uh, attacks as well and hate crimes. So we're seeing a rise on both sides, although I think statistically you would see more anti-Semitic attacks. And, and obviously that's disturbing for many people and it's disturbing for politicians in Ottawa, um, particularly because a number of those attacks have happened in Montreal, where the Prime Minister's riding is. So he's, sp- he's spoken out a number of times about his concerns that, that people are choosing violence, um, particularly in this country. Um, and I guess that's where I guess most people are very worried, right? Because it's one thing to see a conflict play out very far away. It's another thing for the emotions of that conflict to spill out in this country. And I think that that's something that politicians are watching and and looking at very closely. One of the concrete things that the government has done, although this also predates the October 7th attacks, is they have increased um, uh, surveillance and monitoring that happens at temples and and everywhere, really, right? Um, So that people who are in religious groups feel that there is more um, protection. Now, it's, it's horrible that that has to happen and that we have to do it, but there is there are increased security funds for different religious groups to tap into, and, and some people are doing that. But it, it is a real topic of concern, not just obviously for the Prime Minister, but I talked to lots of MPs, uh, Jewish MPs and others, about how they're feeling. And to be scared in your own country, I think, is, is something that people really need to be careful with, particularly when um, they're speaking, because your language is so important in moments like this, calling for calm and trying to get people to express themselves in a respectful, nonviolent way. I live right around the corner in Vancouver uh, from a synagogue and quite often since October 7th, there has been a police cruiser or sometimes two parked in front and it is uh, jarring to see that, you know, it's meant to be a sign of security and it is of course, but it also sure. is a reminder of the reason that it's there. Suzanne, did you want to respond to Rosemary at all? 
Thank you. Yes, I did. Um, I guess the larger question for me is is the more um, societal one, maybe. Uh, like I just feel this shift in the way people interact with each other. And I see that being used as a political tool. And, um, and we can see the, the popularity of, of politicians who preach that divisiveness. And, um, and I worry about that. Okay. Suzanne, thank you. Uh, Rosemary, do you want to weigh in on that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that is often what politics uh, goes to because it's very easy to cause divisions and point to divisions as reasons to, to choose someone else. Um, also because politics is about contrast, right? You, you have to try and show how you're different than the other person. So sometimes sometimes that devolves into places that, you know, none of us really like or, or want to see. Um, and then obviously social media too. I mean, we, we could do three hours on that and how it has further sort of polarized people, but also forced them to, to not see different perspectives. And I think you do hear politicians talking about that, um, whether they're doing enough to help make sure that that happens and that people are communicating respectfully with one another. I'm not sure. I, I mean, it is also about um, sort of practicing what you preach, which perhaps we should all ask more of our politicians from on that front too. Rosemary Barton, thank you very much. And you know what? Thanks for the show idea. Let's do not three hours, but two hours on social media in 2024. It's something that uh, I spend time on both as a, you know, producer of social media, but also a consumer. And there's a lot uh, to discuss and analyze on that. So story idea for 2024. But right now we'd like to know, what do you feel the most important news story is of 2023? Which one didn't get enough attention? Lots of ways to take part in the program. We have 30 minutes left. one 888 if you'd like to phone us. cbc.ca slash aircheck if you'd like to send in a comment or say, hey, give me a call back because I would like to be on the program. Or text us at 226-758-8924. Nicholas Smith is in Sudbury, Ontario. Hi, Nicholas. Hi, good evening. And what would you like to uh, nominate as a, in your case, I think it's a story you feel didn't get enough attention. Yeah, so there was a great CBC story in July about how wild firefighters across Canada, occupational cancers are very common. 85% of the fatalities are from cancer, and most of them are lung cancer. And how province by province, the lack of respiratory protection among firefighters is leading them to have a lot of cancers. So I think a big problem that we're going to see in the future as the wildfire seasons grow is we're going to need a lot more international support. We're going to need a lot more countries to have to come to Canada's aid because we're not going to have the amount of firefighters needed to fight these fires any longer. The, right. I believe it's 8,000 firefighters we need overall, and currently Canada stands at about 5,000. That is uh, a dire um, projection and uh, and definitely a story that uh, I, I can, I think there's no doubt that it's a story that we will follow. Nicholas, thank you very much for calling in. Thank you. Have a good evening. Diego Carducci is in Sherwood Park, Alberta. Hi, Diego. Hi, Ian. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing really well. Uh, so you also have uh, a story that you feel hasn't gotten enough attention. What's that? Yes, it's uh, the fact that, you know, I think last year there was somewhere between 500 and 600,000 people that, uh, that came to Canada. And uh, we really haven't modernized 
how we accredit uh, skills that were acquired overseas. Uh, you know, no matter what solution we come up with to climate change or any of the issues that we're talking about today, it starts with people and with people with the right skills to, uh, to do what needs to be done. And I think to have a hard look at how we accredit skills from overseas and modernize that, that process. Mm-hmm. And, and is this something that's had an impact on you personally? Well, it hasn't had an impact on me personally. I, I had the, you know, the, the privilege of growing up in Canada and going to school in, uh, to Canadian universities and acquiring my skills here. I, I was accredited when, uh, when I graduated as an engineer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I work in the, uh, I work, I've worked in the construction industry for, uh, for many decades now and others, there's a constant skill shortage that, uh, that we experience because, you know, it's difficult to find craftspeople with, uh, with the skills that we need. Yeah. Diego, thank you very much for calling in. Thanks for having me and, uh, happy new year to you and the, uh, and the panel. Yeah, absolutely. Happy new year to you. It's, uh, it's already 2024 in some parts of the world. So not too early to be raising a metaphorical glass to uh, 2024. Uh, Peter Armstrong's a senior business reporter, one of the three journalists we have uh, on the program to check in with as, as people call in. And Peter, uh, whether it's specifically about foreign workers who are trained abroad and not able to uh, do those jobs here in Canada or anything else when it comes to the labor shortage, uh, obviously a big economic story. Yeah, and, and you know what's funny? I, I was having almost this exact conversation at my mother's house just a couple of nights ago over dinner. And what we were talking about there was how do you tease out the different parts of this story? Because there's, there's several kind of pillars to it. There's the temporary foreign workers that every time there seems to be a problem in getting, uh, you know, we can't seem to find the right workers. Well, we'll just solve that by bringing in temporary foreign workers that causes its own sort of series of problems. There's uh, the question of, of the, the vast numbers of immigrants we brought into the country over the last two years that have, let's be honest, done most of the work in keeping the economy from slipping into a recession. And we should be thanking our lucky stars that that happened. Uh, and then there's a productivity question and an investment question here in Canada. And how do we parse out what each of those are and how do we come up with the right policy solutions to any of them? And, and I mean, I thank my lucky stars. I'm not somebody who has to sit and try to come up with some of those decisions because these are hard and they are consequential. And in a lot of ways, they're existential. You know, we, we see the problems with our growth rate and with the fact that, you know, we've got a bunch of people retiring in the years ahead and we don't have enough people coming into the workforce to pay for that. Well, immigration is going to be a huge part of that solution. But how do we do that in a way that we make sure we have a job for them, in a way that we make sure we respect their credentials and that if you've been trained to do whatever job, that you can do that job here, or at least that the path to getting to a place where you can do that job is clear, mm -hmm. that if you're a nurse practitioner or a doctor or whatever it may be, a plumber, an electrician, that you at least when you get on the plane, you know, well, you know, I've got to do four years of schooling before I can do yeah. the job I set out to do. Yeah, um, that's that's a really good point because I, I sometimes wonder if 
you know, clearly there's some people who've been trained abroad for certain jobs and they could absolutely do those jobs properly here. I'll bet there's situations where foreign training is international training is not necessarily up to Canadian standards, but at the very least, making sure everybody fully understands yeah. what they're up against when they come here makes a lot of sense. And then the last bit of it, Ian, that I'd add is uh, we need to have a conversation in this country about who is it that we're trying to attract. And for years, I think it was easy. We wanted to attract rich people. We didn't really care how, where they came from, what work they did. If they had money, come on in, we'll figure it out when you get here. Right now, you know, I talked to Mike Moffat, who's a, the, the prof at, at Ivy and does a bunch of other things, super smart guy. Uh, and he was saying that when he was young, you know, his dad was a sheet metal worker and that Canada was really focused on bringing in guys like him and not guys like Mike Moffat is today a snarky, uh, in his words, I'm not saying that, <laughs> uh, a snarky uh, uh, university professor who cracks wise on Twitter. Uh, and that we need to kind of get back to that, right? If we're going to build the number of homes we need in this country, in the, the next five, let alone next 25 years, we need to bring in people that are electricians and plumbers and skilled trades, right? We're, we're not training enough of them here. And that's part of the solution. And, and I, I feel like in a lot of ways we say, hey, I got a solution, immigration, and then we stop talking about it. And I know that's not the case. And, you know, the, the minister of immigration is going to email me or his staff will, you know, give me a hard time for <laughs> oversimplifying. But the fact is we do need to have the more specific, difficult conversations. And the hardest part about any of this is making decisions. And we have to make some decisions uh, because uh, all of these things are super intertwined and they're really hard to parse out. But once you can and do, there are specific policy solutions to each of them. And I think we can get there. We just, we have to do the work. Really interesting answer. Not lost on me though, Peter, uh, as you said at the beginning that all of this stuff, these are things that you and your mother talked about. 100%. Talked about at the dinner table. I don't know if I really want to accept an invitation to a dinner Oh, you should table. come. She, she wanted me to come by tonight, but I'm, <laughs> I'm now going to be delayed because I'm talking to, to, to Canada on cross-country checkup. Lucky me. There you go. And we have <laughs> uh, just maybe uh, over 20 minutes left for Peter and Rosemary and Susan to talk to Canada and answer your questions on cross-country checkup about what the big story, news story of 2023 was and what was the underrepresented story. Some people getting in touch with us via cbc.ca slash aircheck. Janet Otty Carlisle is in Blue Mountain. She says, a story that's not getting the attention it deserves is long COVID. Medical support is hard to find. People with this illness are usually unable to work, can't get access to financial support, rarely receive emotional support, and are often led to believe their illness is made up. Sarah Solomon via email says that Sudan has been in a war since April of 2023. My entire extended family has been displaced as a result of the war. As a member of the Sudanese Canadian community here, I'm deeply disturbed and disappointed at the dismal coverage. And Glenn Weber emailed us, while there's no shortage of topics that did not get enough attention, one that stands out for me is the growing lack of trust in politicians, the legal system, and the media. Um, yeah, I hear you. I think that it is a, a crisis, really, the lack of trust. Why are people feeling that way? What impact is it having on public discussion when you just don't trust any institutions? And, and how do we address that? So uh, a story that I think certainly is important. Donna Simon is calling us from Calgary. Hi, Donna. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. What do you feel is a story that has been underrepresented? Uh, a story I don't think we're talking near enough about is what's going on in the uh, the lives and the hearts and the minds of our young people. 
Um, I have a son who is uh, in his early 30s, and I'm looking at him and many of his friends, and I'm also a, a school teacher, and I'm seeing a real sense of despair in a lot of the children. Uh, you know, it kind of feels like our social contracts that we had, you know, uh, go to school, work hard, get a job, and then you'll be able to, you know, get a house, get a life, build a family, these kinds of things. They're feeling that these things are no longer available to them. And there's just this sense of, you know, I'm working five jobs and I, I still can't, yeah, I'm still living at home or I'm, I'm still struggling. And I, I don't think we're giving enough time and attention to that because mm-hmm. this is our future <laughs> yeah. what we're building on. And, and I really think we need to look at, you know, for example, is $15 an hour, um, you know, where I live in, in Alberta, is is that a minimum wage that anyone can live on? Um, you know, and, and, and how are we supporting and and encouraging our young people? Because Canada's always been a place of opportunity and hope. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing that diminished in our in our young people. And I think as as we move into the future, we're we're gonna need to start looking at that in a serious way. How long, Donna, have you been a teacher? Thirty two years. Wow. Wow. So do you feel that it's different now in terms of uh, the, the sort of uh, diminishment, uh, uh, diminution of hope uh, compared to when you began? Massively, massively. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even in the, the young people, like I'm even seeing it in the upper elementary school, there's this sense of cynicism, like, why should I work hard? You know, mm-hmm. uh, Life is life is so difficult. There's there there's there's a sense of hopelessness mm. that's really frightening, and I I have not seen that to this well, extent. Well, listen, before. coming coming from a teacher with your years of experience, that that is troubling. Uh, you know, it's funny though. I was talking to some people the other day, uh, Peter Armstrong. If you're listening, this was the dinner conversation at my home a couple of days ago. Um, we uh, were. Uh, I was saying that when I graduated from university, which was a long time ago, like more than 32 years ago, uh, we had, we were worried about the Cold War, what might happen if somebody's finger slipped on on the nuclear button. <laughs> um, Quebec, it looked like it was on the verge of separation. Inflation and unemployment were soaring. I was in the Maritimes where a lot of us felt that, that we didn't have good job prospects. So, it, you know, it all felt pretty bleak then too. And I just wondered if maybe... Many generations have dealt with this, and I guess it's that's true to an extent. But Donna, if you're seeing something now that you haven't seen in 32 years, that that's quite meaningful. Yeah, and I think it's because you know, it, like political situations change and financial situations change. But I mean, kids right now they're looking at will the planet still be here? Mm-hmm. Like, should I have should I get into a relationship and have children because you know the planet may not survive climate yeah. change? You know, we've we've got these huge, huge issues, existential issues. You know, like, and and I I just I just feel like I, I know good times come and good times go, mm-hmm. but I, I see such a sense of despair in yep. the young ones, and and especially when they're doing everything that we told them to do in order to mm-hmm. be successful. Yep. And none of those things work anymore, but there isn't anything new to look to yet. And so I'm very concerned about, you know, how how society, how our governments, you know, how are are we going to keep our our young people, you know, engaged and, and, you know, not abiding in a sense of despair. I, I really see that and it very much worries me. 
Yeah, hope, if it's realistic, is important, obviously, especially absolutely, absolutely. when you're young. Donna, thank you very much for calling. Also makes me realize, you know, it's a it's a difficult thing in news coverage, right? Like the National's not going to lead with a story about uh, that we don't have enough hope, but, uh, but there are lots of uh, channels for journalism, uh, you know, even in the hour of the National, but on CBC Radio, on various programs, on Rosemary's program to talk about these uh, issues in a, in a wider way, even if they're not headline issues. Uh, let's see, our next call is Deborah Brown-Simon, who's in Hamilton. Hi, Deborah. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. And you have a, a suggestion for a story you feel should get more attention. Um, I just feel like the middle class, which also, that's what it felt like three, four years ago, also the the working class, Mm -hmm. being in Hamilton, um, it feels like we're paying for everything. It feels like I gave up my plastic straws, which I love, Mm -hmm. so that people can fly around on private jets. Yeah, I mean, I guess it didn't exactly work that way, but I understand why it feels frustrating. Um, Any other situations as a middle-class person where you feel like you're... um, you know, taking on a burden that uh, not everybody else has? Profit shares. Like, the, uh, um, I pay a lot for my accounts at the bank. I pay a lot to go shopping at um, Loblaws, No Frills. And it feels like the, all of the profits um, just got eaten up and everybody got loans from the government. And it feels like all of that fell on our shoulders. Mm-hmm. Okay, Deborah, thank you very much for calling. Thank you, and Happy New Year to you all. Yeah, Happy New Year to you as well. Um, Throughout the year, technology certainly has been a topic of a lot of stories, and uh, often, you know, the callers have been very interested in those when we've done programs here on Cross Country Checkup about tech. So we asked our colleague Nora Young, the host of Spark on CBC Radio, for her reflections on the biggest stories in tech. The most important news story of the year. Well, you may have heard of this little thing called ChatGPT. Uh, the growth of generative AI was definitely the year's biggest story about the startling ability of large language models like ChatGPT to create text, but also other types of generative AI that can generate images and audio and even computer code. And while there's been a lot of hype, both positive and negative about it, it's legitimately important. But there was something really startlingly impressive and even alarming about generative AI. And it immediately raised all kinds of questions about job loss, intellectual property, plagiarism, and the tendency these systems have to just make things up. It even made its way into the U.S. writers and actors strike. But we're also seeing this real rise in efforts to contain AI and use it responsibly. We're seeing governments starting to weigh in about it, and I expect that to continue. Not in the flashy, you know, Terminator AI is going to destroy us all headlines, but in real practical terms like the way AI-based algorithms shape the information we have access to. So not so glamorous, but genuinely really important. And that's my hope is that we start to talk about that more in 2024. And that is Nora Young, the host of Spark on CBC Radio. Let's return to our panel. We have a lot of calls, but I want to hear uh, one more time from Rosemary Barton, uh, CBC's chief political correspondent, Peter Armstrong, senior business reporter for CBC News, and Susan Ormiston, senior correspondent with CBC. Uh, Rosemary, let's uh, look ahead to the next year. And I I expected callers to ask this question, but I'll bet a lot are interested in uh, when the next federal election would be. You did touch on this earlier, but... Uh, what do you think is is likely? 
I mean, if you are to believe the prime minister, and I generally start from the basis that everyone's telling me the truth, um, it, we are some ways away, probably 2025. I mean, legally, it would be fall of 2025. I expect it would be a little sooner than that, maybe the, the spring. It is very much dependent on whether the Liberals can keep the NDP satisfied with this deal, which is one of the reasons they've put now this national dental care program in place so quickly, because that was demand of the NDP. And from everyone that I speak to, uh, the deal is in good shape and, and people are relatively happy. Part of that uh, is because the NDP can't really afford an election right now, and I'm not sure the outcome would be drastically changed for them uh, going into an election. And obviously part of it for the other on the other side, for the Liberals, is there's no way they want an election right now, given the way the polls are. One of the things that, that they are sort of banking on is what Peter was talking about there, and that is interest rates declining. If interest rates decline over the next 12 to 18 months, people are going to start to feel better. Um, they're going to start to feel differently than some of the callers that, that we're listening to right now. And so they might be more inclined to listen to what the Liberals are saying and not blame them. I think there's two things that I'm, I'm watching for politically in 2024. One, how does Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, is there any way for them to turn this around and start telling a different story about what they're doing and, and how they are? benefiting the country, according to them. And the second one is, can Pierre Poiliev sort of hold on to the momentum he has? Because this is pretty early in the election cycle to be this high and peaking. Um, and that's something conservatives have expressed to me, too. How can they make sure that their guy keeps going and has the endurance to keep going and, and keep uh, introducing himself to Canadians and, and making sure that people like his ideas? Because as we get closer to an election, he's going to have to start fleshing out some of those policy ideas, because we haven't heard very much. On, on a lot of fronts from him on that. So those are the two sort of flip sides of the coin that I'm watching for in the, in the next 12 months. But, you know, all that being said, Ian, politics is bananas, right? So <laughs> like anything can happen and yeah. you can have me back three months from now and say, what the heck were you talking about, Barton? None of that happens. So I'm um, happy to do that if that happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I won't phrase it that way, right? <laughs> so, uh, But <laughs> yes, fine. happy to have yeah. you back. Uh, Peter, uh, Rosemary talked about uh, interest rates. You talked about interest rates earlier in the program, but uh, but for people maybe who are just tuning in, right. 2024, will we see them drop again? Uh, yes, uh, though the question will be how slowly and or how quickly might that happen and, and what will the schedule be, right? I, I, I was citing one forecast that I think is pretty aggressive, but that has the Bank of Canada's key lending rate all the way down to 3.5% by the end of the year. And all of that, of course, is contingent on inflation doing what we think it's going to do. It's been hovering right above the Bank of Canada's target window between 1% and 3%. It spent the last two months at 3.1% and then 3.1% again. Uh, the last time we got the numbers, we'll see as we head into 2024, but we expect that to fall right into the window and then, in fact, pass that actual target of 2% uh, by the end of the year. So if that happens, and, and look, I, I know we're sort of running out of time, but it's worth reminding people that it's not so much that the cost of living crisis is going to get better, but it's going to stop getting worse, right? We're going to see, rather than having food prices growing by 10 and 12% and the overall inflation up at 3 point, uh, or 8.1% at the peak and 6.1%, 1% at the beginning of this year, we hope 
if we could wave a magic wand, we hope that inflation will only continue to grow from where it is now, these exceptionally high prices, but just at a more moderate rate. Uh, and so people will still see higher prices. We don't want to get into deflation, and we'll talk about that maybe another time, because if you think inflation is bad, wait till I tell you about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, we should see progress on the interest rate file so long as we see progress on the, uh, on the inflation file. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we will. The question is, how quickly will we see that happen? All right, Peter, thank you. I, I do have some other calls I want to go to, but I also, before that, want to bring in Susan Ormiston, uh, Israel-Hamas war, uh, the climate conference, but you've also covered U.S. politics for us many times, including over the past year. What are you going to be watching for as we head into a presidential election year? Yes, well, I have a prediction that will come true. There will be a presidential election in November of this coming year, starts yes. tomorrow, and the election campaign may start in earnest sooner than we think. Uh, Biden's popularity numbers are very low. There's a lot of consternation amongst Democrat circles of whether he is the guy to try to take them into the 2024 election. A lot going against him. The economy is actually improving, but as Peter spoke to, he He's not getting credit for it. Biden isn't. And also the various wars that the U.S. is involved in, getting entrenched, spending lots of money on foreign wars, as, as Trump likes to say. And of course, Donald Trump is back. So one of our callers, Paul Vandershield, and I was listening with interest to his concerns about not enough coverage on the threat to democracy. Well, Paul, you're going to get your dreams come true because we're <laughs> going to be reporting on this a lot again. We've had a bit of a reprieve, um, at least the first year after the last election, which I covered in earnest and in depth, and now we're not going to have any reprieve. The Democrat strategist that I read recently s says that Democrats fear that the actual campaign is going to start very quickly because Trump is going to race through the primaries. He's going to be the candidate and the Democrats are going to turn themselves inside out trying to figure out who's going to represent them or whether Biden can recover in the polls. So a very uh, interesting year. And of course, the added intrigue of whether Donald Trump will get further embroiled in actual court cases. But there's complications therein because all those criminal indictments against him, which are ongoing, may be delayed. The Supreme Court is now being asked to look at the viability of Trump running in an election campaign. So these may delay any um, embroiling of his time inside a courtroom and he may go on and, and he possibly could win if he is the primary candidate, the mm -hmm. 2024 election. So strap yourselves in. No kidding. Susan Ormiston, thank you. Uh, her answer, well, you know, the presidential election, always a big news story of a presidential election year, 2024. Our question on the program today, as we look back at 2023, what do you think has been the most important story? Which one do you think should have gotten more attention? I have about five minutes left in the program. I'm going to try to quickly go through at least a couple, maybe three calls. And we'll start with Salome um, Walt Waters in Victoria. Hi. Salome Waters. Yeah, you see, I, I have a I have a pronunciation guide in here, but it's not. It wasn't quite right. Salome. Sorry about that. Um, okay. Yeah, I live in Victoria, BC, and I work with the homeless population. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more homelessness, especially uh, of the seniors that I work with. Yes. And it's very worrying. There's more rent evictions. There are more people who simply can't afford even on their seniors' pension, uh, where they're living, there's not very much subsidized housing. And they're ending up sleeping on the sidewalk, which is mm. 
bloody outrageous in yes. this country. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm so worried about that. We we should be honoring our seniors, not relegating them to the trash heap. Yeah. Uh, good point. Well made, Salome. Sorry that I uh, made a mistake with your name uh, before, <laughs> but thank you very much for calling in. I I, I hate to uh, to cut this short, but I do want to try to get one or two more calls in. But thank you very much for putting that call uh, on our program, uh, Sheila. Barling is in Creston, British Columbia. Sheila, what story do you think uh, is either the top news story of the year or should have received more attention? Um, well, thank you for taking my call. And hundreds of thousands of, of uh, immigrants have accepted Canada's invitation to come to Canada, but we have no infrastructure to handle them. Mm-hmm. And um, I, in particular, brought a family from Iraq to Canada with a job uh, offer. And they've been here three years since last September and still don't have permanent residency. And every time their temporary residency expires, they have to pay money to get the permanent residence again. And in the meantime, they lose benefits and no hospitalization is available mm-hmm. to them. And um, they, they know of people that are four and five years in this circumstance. And they're just a, one family, but people from Afghan are going to Pakistan and then being sent back to Afghanistan because we can't handle it. Mm. Where are we going with this? Yeah. Okay, Sheila, again, only a short time for your call, but uh, I'm glad you ha- you did call us and I'm glad you had a chance to make that point because it is obviously a very important story. As we look back at the year 2023, just a few hours left now before we can officially celebrate New Year's wherever you happen to be in Canada. And uh, we have you know, really about two and a half minutes left in the program. So maybe I can quickly go around with our panel that so kindly has uh, been with us for the last two hours. Rosemary Barton, I'll start with you and just uh, last words for 2023 for our audience. Listen, I, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit cheesy and, and, and thank people for speaking with us. Uh, obviously, you do it a lot, but there's lots of people that come on my show too, um, sort of quote-unquote regular Canadians who share their stories and their challenges. And um, I know that all of us do that, right? As storytellers, mm-hmm. we, we trust people to talk to us and tell us what they're dealing with. And sometimes I'm surprised that people uh, say as much as they do about what they're dealing with, but mm-hmm. it, it helps us better understand the country and helps us better tell the stories too. Oh. All right. You know, Rosemary's very kind, gracious uh, comments will have to stand as the goodbye on uh, everyone's behalf, because I think I finished this year by slightly miscalculating the time. So Peter and Susan, <laughs> I will have to thank you and uh, and pass on your thanks to our, our callers, uh, as Rosemary did. So thanks very much for taking part in this program. You're welcome thanks, and Andrea. Happy New Year. Yeah, of course. Happy New Year to everybody. Yes, for sure. That's it for Check Up the Podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkups live broadcast on CBC Radio from December 31st, 2023. If you'd like to share comments or appear on a future show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Alexa DeFrancesco, Catriana DeSante, and Selena Aaron. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Max Coleman, Ivana Stoyanovich, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing from Stefan Oprishko and Matthias Wilson. 
Program assistant is Hannah Abrahamsey. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Plender, Steve Howard, Rachel DeGasperas, and Frankie Fiorini. Our digital producer is Sinisha Yolich. The senior producer of the program is Richard Goddard. I'm Ian Hannah-Mansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Checkup, the podcast, will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.